The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. I, uh, can I just say something real honestly? I love being able to come together and see the body and worship the Lord together. Can you say amen to that? I think if one thing this, uh, boy, this virus has taught us is that we need each other. Can you say amen to that? Not only in corporate worship, but Lord willing, our intentions to reopen on the 13th of September with our small groups, uh, for those who are comfortable to be a part of that. But we were created for relationship, relationship with God and relationship with one another. I love what Chad says, particularly to the men, that, that if we don't have relationship with each other, real relationship, then we miss that fellowship that God intends for us to have in the body. And as a result of that, we will find that there will be disunity in the body. And so relationship, fellowship breeds unity around the faith. Can anybody say amen to that? I wish I had said that. The next time I repeat what Chad said, I'm going to take credit for it. It was in 2010, I was uh, serving on what is called a Kairos weekend. As some of you may have gone through an Emmaus weekend or a Chrysalis weekend. It's a renewal of faith kind of weekend. But Kairos is specifically designed for those who are in prison. And it was, I think, 2010, if I'm correct. But I had gone to Okeechobee Correctional Institute to serve during the weekend. Uh, they let me out in the evenings, but we went in in the morning. Uh, but to serve around tables uh, with other believers and with prisoners in particular. And one of the young men that was seated at my table was a young man by the name of Jason. He was 30 years of age, but he had been convicted of murder some years before at the age of 17. And as Jason began to share his story, it kind of became very surprising to me that, that he would be a convicted murderer intended to, by a sentence, to live out the rest of his life in prison. Because as he shared his story with me, I learned from Jason that he had a very close, intact family. Uh, they were a family of faith. They attended and were a part of a local church regularly. He grew up in, a, in an upper-middle-class suburban area of Coral Ridge, if any of you know where that is, in South Florida. It's an affluent area. Jenny, I think you're from that area, aren't you? Close to it. Uh, but he had grown up in that. He was an accomplished football player. Uh, he was an accomplished track star. He had, as he explained, a room full of trophies where he had competed in motocross, very tight family and very close-knit together. And I wondered how a young man at the age of 17 would have been convicted of a crime of murder. And so I went back that night, the first night I was there, and I, I Googled the case. And I learned that in the case, he was an accomplice to a murder with two other teenagers of a, uh, of a gym owner who owned an, uh, a very successful gym there in Coral Ridge. But one of his competitors was very jealous of this gym owner's success, and he began to influence Jason and two other young men to call them into his scheme of plotting to murder this gym owner. 
And under his influence and persuasion, they went out and they murdered this man. Not only did they murder him, but they horrifically murdered him. They cut his body into pieces. They put his body in a 55-gallon drum, put holes in it, and sank it in one of the canals in South Florida. And I thought, how could that be? Years later, I continued to follow the case, and the man who had been kind of the mastermind behind the crime had, had been absolved of all guilt in the case because his hand was not in the crime at all. And Jason's parents had begun to seek and finally uh, won a civil case against the man. And what they wanted was justice. They didn't discount the fact that their son was guilty, but the man who had influenced that and taken them to that point of heinous crime, he had seemed to have gone scot-free, and they wanted justice in it. Well, I find that very same parallel in what Jude is writing in his letter to the church. And you remember in context, Jude is writing to tell us to contend to the faith, and there are those within your midst who have sought others after them to listen to them, and they are apostates, and they are taking, they're leading God's people away from the faith to follow them. And Jude now is going to say that they're very in, that God is, is going to judge that because they, just like this man, have seemed to prey on innocent people and draw them away from the faith, and God is upset, Right? And so he says this in verse 15 as he begins to quote, or verse 14, as he begins to tell us about this judgment that is is to come, and he invokes Enoch and his prophecy in it. Follow along with me, verse 14. It was also about these. Now, the these that he's talking about are, are the reference that he gives the description of how these apostates are, these heretics are in the preceding verses, verses 12 and 13. He says, it was about uh, these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Now, Enoch, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 5 to find out who Enoch was. As a matter of fact, there's very little recorded in Scripture about who Enoch was. But we know that Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. Enoch was the father of Methuselah. And in the scant reference to him in Genesis chapter 4, uh, chapter 5, verse 24 states this, for 365 years Enoch lived and then he walked with God and he was not for God took him. He's one of only two that we find in Scripture that did not face the first death. That's the same death that you and I will all face. But he walked with God and God took him just like he took Elijah. Now, what does that mean and how it happened? We're not given much guidance in Scripture as to that. There's only one other reference to Enoch, and it's found uh, besides this in Jude, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to turn there with me, in verse 5. Of this eunuch in the great hall of faith that the writer speaks of those who, who demonstrated their righteousness as walking by faith, the same way that we we uh, inherit or gain righteousness is that we place our faith in Christ and our trust in Him. The Bible says that when we do that, we are declared righteous. And Enoch was that. He's one of those in the hall of faith. Verse 5 in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, by faith, 
Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Wouldn't you like that to be on your tombstone? He pleased God. She pleased God. And so that's really all we know about Enoch, except for now where Joel quotes Enoch, the prophecy of Enoch. I don't want to get into weeds in this, but but where where Jude is quoting from is the book of Enoch, which really was a fictional book. That, that was written where there were all manners of quotes and things given credit to the life of Enoch, but we know that it was not written by Enoch. But he seems to quote a passage from this book, First Enoch. It would kind of be no different than today if I were standing here teaching this morning or preaching that, that I might make, make reference to and quote C.S. Lewis perhaps. I might quote another of what they had said, but in the content of that, there was truth and it was biblical there. Now, he quotes this and he says in verse, uh, in the second part of this verse, here's, here's what Enoch prophesied. By the way, he was the first prophet that's recorded in Scripture. He prophesied saying this, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of His holy ones. And we know that's true, that, that Jesus is going to return with 10,000 of His holy ones. Verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, keep in mind that when Jude is quoting this, he's quoting it in reference to those who were apostates those who had departed from the faith, and those who were trying to bring others along with them, taking advantage of them, exploiting them for their own gain, and literally pulling them away from faith in God. And Enoch, uh, Jude says here that what's going to come on them is the judgment of God, as Enoch had pointed out there as he quotes him. Now, Matthew tells us, as Jesus is saying, that the Son of Man will, in fact, return. This is only one reference, and let me read this for you. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels. Those are the holy ones that Jude makes reference here to as he quotes Enoch, that Jesus is going to return and 10,000s upon 10,000s of the holy ones, the angels are going to come with Him to execute judgment on the earth against all of the ungodly. He says the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then they will repay each person according to what He has done. And so Jude just reiterates that, that the Son of Man is coming. Now, now let's look at the who in this prophecy of Enoch that the Lord Jesus is going to judge. The who is found here in the same verse. He is coming to execute judgment on all and convict the ungodly. Notice in that verse that the word ungodly is used four different times. It seems as though he has an issue with ungodly people, right? Let me read it again. He's going to come execute judgment on all and to convict, in other words, show them guilty 
He's going to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. That's the second time that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This word ungodly can, can be translated wicked or evil. In, throughout the Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament and the Hebrew word that's the same derivative as the Greek word that's used here, it refers to those who are wicked and to those who are evil. And he's going to come and he's going to judge them. Just to give you some references and some ideas of how this word is translated in different verses, that in Romans chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says that a wicked person or an evil person is one who has a perversity of mind, that, that all of their thoughts are perverse, meaning that they're anti-holy, they're anti against what God and his righteousness would be, that it seems as though their mind is a continual factory of perversion. It's quoted in Psalm chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, where, where David lines out that this wicked or perverse person is, is, someone, uh, is, is someone who is surrendered to evil impulses. How many of you have occasionally evil or wicked impulses? Can I see your hand raised? Every one of you should raise your hand. But this person that he describes is one who has surrendered to evil impulses. In other words, there's no check in there at all. That they always want to do, and Paul says in the book of Romans, that not only do they, they adhere to evil, but they create other ways to be evil and try to entice others into them. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 states it this way, that, that, that they are wickedness is at the seat of their heart, at the very being of who they are. There's wickedness. Matthew chapter 13, 19, Jesus makes the issue that, that those who are wicked or evil or ungodly are inspired by Satan himself. Now, I don't know about you, but my flesh is fully capable of causing me to do that as well. Can anybody say amen to that? So I can't say like Flip Wilson, if you're under the age of 40, you have no idea who I'm talking about. If you're old as dirt like my brother Maurice, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Where Flip Wilson said, the devil made me do it. Listen, he can entice and he's at the seat of evil. But you and me, our flesh can be so corrupt as corrupted by the sinful nature that we also can be inspired by that. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 13, in the Hebrew there, it has the idea of one who is progressive in their evil. In other words, they continue to progress in their evil, and they are contagious. Not only do they progress in their evil, but they are contagious, meaning they influence others to that evil, and they delight in do that. Proverbs chapter 21, 10 has the idea that they are uh, utterly perverse finding ungodly delight in the infliction of injury on others, whether it be bodily injury or, or some type of injury. They're always wanting to hurt somebody else. So we see just a, a spattering of, of what he's talking about, that Jesus is going to judge the ungodly. Now, here's the next, the next natural question, is who are the ungodly? Put on your seatbelts. Every single one of us in this room are the ungodly. 
in our born condition as totally depraved. We are all ungodly. Thanks be to God for the grace and mercy of Him who sent His Son, Jesus, to pay a price for the penalty of our sin and our wickedness at the core of our hearts that we might be set free from that and be declared the righteousness of God in Christ by what He has done for us, not by what we have done. Put your hands together and thank Him for that. Now, in context here, though, we have to see who he's talking about. He's talking about those who are the apostates, and he's equating these apostates to all that is contained within the description of that word. And in a general sense, everyone who might be ungodly would would be those who have rejected God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, and they will die in their natural state, having not been born again by placing their trust in Christ. Here's the next question. What will their judgment be? Because he he declares that when Jesus comes on that day to judge, and judgment lends itself to the fact that there is a judgment, and what will that judgment be? Turn over in the next book over to your right, Revelations chapter 20, verses 11, 15. And this is just one of many references to that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. John writes this as he is seeing what's going to take place. He says, Then I saw a great white throne. Underline that phrase, great white throne, because that's what we make reference to often, that the judgment of the ungodly will be at the great white throne judgment of Christ. He says, and I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, that's Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. If you've trusted Christ this morning as your Savior, your name is written in indelible blood ink in the book of life, and it can never, ever, ever, ever be erased. Thank God for that. But in the other book, he says... In the other book that was there, the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Now, presumably, what was written in the books were, were, number one, their condition of ungodliness, and then every ungodly act that they had ever committed in their life. Think for yourself in a moment, if you're honest. Could you count the ungodly acts that you committed in your life? I can't. I can't count the ones I did yesterday, my... My dear wife loves, she reminds me of those, and I say, yeah, you're right, dear, right? But all of our ungodly acts are written there, and and it's as if when we're placed in the, the book of life, when our name is written there, the other is stricken away, never to be held against us. So he says there were the others. And they were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And here he makes his reference to the second death. Did you know you're going to die twice if you're not in Christ? You'll die once in this body, but if we've trusted Christ, we'll be, to, be, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For those who die apart from Christ, there is a second death that they will face. And he makes reference to that here. It's it's that time of of the judgment where Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 13, verse 29, where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. But, But Jesus did not cast out demons in your name. Jesus did not do this in your name. Jesus did not go to church in your name. Jesus did not give in your name. Jesus did not do this in your name. And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's not according to works of righteous deeds that I have done, the Bible says, but according to your mercy you have saved me. You see, we have the idea, and sometimes it carries over in our Christian life, that that the more good we do, the more favor we find with God. Can I tell you that all of your favor in God rests in the shadow of the Almighty, the Lord Jesus, who gave His life as a penalty and a payment for our sins, and that's where our righteousness rests, and we are saved in Him. Now, on the other hand, there's this time that takes place for, for those who are judged, But thanks be to God, by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, He has saved us. Amen? Now, I'm not so naive as to say that the us includes all of us in this room because some of us may still be good church person, you know, good church folk. I come, I carry the right Bible, I I sing the right songs, I have the right antidotes. Hey, brother, how you doing? Oh, good, sister, and all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with that, but, but, but we still have not maybe trusted in all that Christ, and we're still relying on our good works to save us. They will never save us. Our righteousness is like filthy rags in His sight, Isaiah says. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we are saved. Now, there will be a judgment for those of us who have trusted Christ, but it's unlike the great white throne judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ. We refer to that as the Bema seat of Christ. And and that, that word Bema is used to illustrate how awards were given or rewards were given out at the games as athletes would compete And so as athletes competed, there was an award that was given to those. And and, and I can't help but think that that there will be times that that when I stand before the Lord Jesus, that that there may be some sorrow when I stand there before him, but not sorrow in the fact that I'm lost because the blood of Jesus has saved me, but sorrow in the fact of the things I might could have done in his name, and I squandered and wasted that, right? Right? But it's at that Bema seat that Paul speaks of when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. You can look at that later. But, but our judgment will be judgment based on the motives in which we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so if my motive for serving him as a pastor is that I get the highlight on the platform every Sunday morning, can I tell you what? All of those things are going to go away, and I will not receive the first reward for it. What's our motive in, in serving others? That's, that's what Jesus looks at. He looks at the heart. And it's our motives that, that really determine whether or not we have done those things in His name or for our own self-glory in vain. I never will forget my first time to the island of Jamaica. It was 1989, and I got on a bus off the, uh, um, from the airport in Montego Bay. And I, I didn't have a single person around me that I knew, and I was told that there'll be a man that will find you in the parking lot, and he'll get you on his bus, and he will take you to the place that you're going, St. Lucia. You're laughing because this has happened to you too, right? And so I get on the bus, and, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm the only non-Jamaican on the bus. And we get further and further and further away from Montego Bay, and we're driving to the end of the island, a place called St. Lucia. How many of you from Jamaica this morning know where St. Lucia is? It's the only one from Jamaica that knows where it is. That's how remote it was, right? (laughs) And I was going to be there for a week teaching pastors and preaching at a little mountainside church up in the hills at a place called Mount Peace. And the pastor that, by the way, the pastor wasn't there at the home where the cab driver dropped me off, and I was there for a few hours by myself, and I thought, I hope they don't think I'm an intruder and they're going to do something bad to me, right? But as I was there at his house, he had already sent word that I would be welcome to sit in his office of his home and, and just kind of take some time to rest and relax. And, and I was there, I, I happened to begin to look at some of the books that were on his bookshelf in his study. And, and I was kind of taken aback at some of the authors of the, of the books that he was being influenced by in his pastoral ministry. And you remember, how many of you remember cassette tapes? <laughs> okay. You remember the pencil with the cassette tape? Somebody put a picture of that on Facebook. Yeah, we've done that. And I began looking through, and I wasn't being nosy. They told me I could, they were out for display. And, and I recognized the, the, the tapes and, and, the, and the apostates, and I'll use that phrase, that were contained in all of his library. Guys by the name of Kenneth Hagen and Kenneth Copeland back in that day, the, the, the birthers of the prosperity movement, that, that horrific gospel that leads so many astray. And my heart was grieved. And I thought about this, that of all the influence that we in the West have had on the church, the body of Christ around the world, and the thing that we are exporting the most as a body of Christ are the heresies and the apostates and their damnable teachings. I'm starting to preach a little bit now, okay? I've been to India many times, and it breaks my heart when I go to India. And, and my goodness, Jesus is one of billions of gods in India under the religion of Hindu. And, and to turn on the TV when I would be in a place that I was able to stay in a hotel and to turn it on, and one of the most prominent channels was the God channel. It's kind of the sidekick to TBN that we have exploited all of this heresy and apostasy in developing nations like India, and all we seem to do is export these heretical doctrines. 
Recently in Nicaragua, I was Nicaragua. I was able to go into a little bookstore. And, and, and there was a, a book that many of you are familiar with, and I'm going to hurt some folks' feelings right now, but, but I, I'm, I'm your pastor, and I gotta, I'm responsible to this, right? And, and it was the book, Jesus Calling in Spanish. Now, many of you probably read the devotional of Jesus Calling, but, but the problem with that, that devotional is that Sarah Young... It claims to have divine inspiration from God making her words equivalent with the canonized text of Scripture. And, and I did a search back then to find out how many languages that was translated in. I can't remember how many, but I thought, man, we're proliferizing this all around the world. And our own bookstore, the Lifeway bookstore, is promoting it out there. And I think, what is it? Are we doing it for the bottom line or greed? Where is truth today? Africa. Glenn, you and I have seen it there even in Liberia where we're training the pastors. Where, where pastors come in and from, we're trying to train them in correct biblical doctrine and, and this prosperity gospel movement is around and, and the popular speakers, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, all of the others. And it, and it grieves my heart. And, and then Jude goes on to write, again, to, to tell us how can we decide, how do we discern. You, you don't need your pastor, you don't need a pastor to tell us who these heretics are, who these apostates are. We have the Word of God, and if it deviates anything from the Word of God and is not a true gospel, if it's, if it's a political gospel, if it's a health, wealth, prosperity gospel, if it's a nationalism gospel, we ought to have a red flag that goes up and says, wait a minute, this is not in accordance with Scripture, and we've got to dig in the Word of God so that we will know it. He goes on to begin to describe in verse 16 some of these characteristics of heretics and apostates because he wants us to know how to look for them. He, first of all, we, we, just for reference, go back to verse 8 and you'll see that here's one of the characteristics. Verse 10, he, he, he refers to them as being blasphemy, uh, blasphemic, and, and also that they're like wild animals. They're doing animalistic things, verses 12 and 13. And here in verse 16, he begins to describe them as grumbling or murmurers. Now, a little side note here. He's talking about these apostates, but we can make application to our own lives. We don't want to do that, right? I'd rather point at the heretics and the apostates. Lord, don't point your word at me. Are you with me? It's easy to listen in the third person, but let's put it in the first person here, make application in our life. He says these apostates are grumblers. They're murmurers. It's the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians when he spoke of the, the children of Israel when they wandered in the desert and they murmured against God. And we can mark it down that, that any time in a believer's life where we're beginning to drift away from the Lord and drift away from the presence of walking in the Holy Spirit in our lives, the further away, the bigger grumblers we become. One of the first questions I ask folks sometimes when they have this habit of grumbling, I'll say, how's your quiet time with the Lord? 
They don't want to talk about quiet time with the Lord. They just want to complain and grumble, right? See, I find in my life, the closer I get to the Lord, the more I walk in the Spirit, which, my goodness, is not where I want it to be, the more I begin to crumble. And, and I become malcontent is the next word he uses here. This word malcontent means to blame, to be discontent, complaining about others, finding fault not only in their situation, but finding fault in others. You know anybody that's a malcontent? A grumbler, a malcontent. Mark it down. I can tell you without question that if that's that in my life or in your life, then we have drifted away from the presence of the Holy Spirit. And put it this way. The Holy Spirit will never lead you or I to be a malcontent or a grumbler. I need a bigger amen on that. My preferences, my biases, my prejudices, and that's in general, any of that, when I'm walking out of step with the Holy Spirit, those begin to well up in my flesh, and I will become a complainer, a grumbler, and I will become a malcontent. How many of you are familiar with the, with the cartoon character Andy Cap? We, we got a picture of him here just to trigger your brain. You know this guy? Now you know who he is, right? If you've ever read, read his comic strip, he, he's, he's always one of those that's never content about anything, right? It's always complaining, cynical. One of the cartoon strips is characterized this way, referring to Andy Cap, saying, you're satisfied by nothing that befalls you. You complain at everything. You don't want what you've got. You long for what you haven't got. In winter, you wish it were summer, (laughs) parentheses, in Georgia, we forget what summer's like, right? In summer, you wish that it were winter. You were like the sick folk, hard to please and cynic. That's what that word translated, malcontent, basically is a cynic. Side note, Scripture utterly condemns in the body of Christ grumbling, complaining, being malcontents. Just as one reference, James chapter 1, verse 13, you can look at it there. I have, I have learned that, that where there is that attitude that it can wreck every form of relational content that there is. Where there's grumbling and complaining and malcontent, it can wreck a marriage. It can wreck a whole family. It can wreck a workplace. It can wreck a church. It can wreck a church staff. That wherever that is, it is like a seed of cancer that grows. And it should not be in the body of Christ. My goodness, I don't know how we can read the blessings of God in Scripture and remain in that, right? That's not to say that sometimes we don't get into that, but let's pray that when we do, the Holy Spirit lovingly smacks me on the head and says, hey, knucklehead, look at how good you have it and give praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, preach enough. He says they're followers 
of their own sinful desires. In other words, self is all that matters. They, they follow after their own sinful desires, not caring, not having a concern at all for others, but looking out for themselves, and they follow their sinful doubt. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. In other words, they're the kind of folks that you'd like to buy them for what they're worth and sell them for what they think they're worth, Right? Boasters, but here it seems to indicate that they are boasting so that they might win some favor with those who think that they might have greater influence for their ends. It's that that thing that James talks about when you see one who's coming into the congregation, assembly of the believers, and they're well-dressed, and you say, hey, 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 you come down here and sit in the front row. But the person who is of lesser means, you sit back there, Right? It, it's the pastor who, who peruses the giving records to see who he needs to make sure or who, who he needs to make sure he smooths, right? That's why I don't, I don't want to know who gives a dime. That way I can, I can preach love and I can preach hell without any discrimination, right? They're the flowery conferences that we see take place. And and my goodness, by the time the introductions have taken place, you think the guy is greater than Jesus, right? He says, that's what these folks are. They, They have a desire to be in that prominent place. They have a desire to be recognized Somebody put it this way. One commentator, as I was reading him, said that they are at the same time bombastic, noisy, full of themselves among those that they hope to impress and also prepared to curry favor with those that they deem important so as to get advantage out of it. May God purify His church. Can you say amen to that? Let me give you some practical applications at closing. These are some barometers that, that, I've, that I kind of have put in my life, and I'm not saying this to say that I'm far from any of this. Listen, just because I know I can go south in a New York second. I said that last week. I don't even know that I can. All of us can. And if there's not accountability in our lives, we can befall to any manner of of apostasism or heresy or following after those that are. Number one, I determined a long time ago in pastoral ministry, my name will never be promoted. It won't be any sign, on any sign around here outside, the reverend. <laughs> you know me, you know I'm not reverent, right? <laughs> I'll never name anything after myself. I'll never name a class after myself. It's not going to be JMO stuff or whatever. It's, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And that keeps us in mind that it's all about Him. The second thing that, that I do, I keep men around me that can check my mail any day of the week. Can I put a note to men? Men, you need to have men around you that love you and that will read your mail and that will check it and in love say, you're becoming a bozo. I almost said something else, but I can't say that from the pulpit. 
that I know that love me. I don't do this normally. You know why I love David Hammonds right next to me all the time? Because David will tell me just like it is. Does somebody say amen to that? I, I got a guy that, that, that will tell me what it is. In love, and he's not afraid to. And I listen to men like that. Why? Because I can mess it up that quick. Number three, there's a barometer of the Holy Spirit. Anytime I get the idea that, man, you're preaching good, the Holy Spirit says, whoa, watch out. You're about to try to rob my glory. Lastly, I've determined, determined a long time ago that I'm, I'm not going to ever seek prominence. I'm not going to seek a position. I'm not going to seek a place. I'm not going to seek a pulpit. I'm not going to clamor to try to get on the speaking circuit. If that ever happens, it's God doing it, not me. Amen? Now, like j that sounded all like pastoral stuff. No, it applies to every area, every serving area in the body of Christ. The Lord Jesus is purifying His church through all that we're seeing take place. We're getting back to what the real focus is, and the real focus is Jesus. It's not us. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our preferences. It's about magnifying Him and making His name great. I want to ask the worship team to come and close, lead us in this closing song, and then I'm going to come back briefly to inform uh, you of some important announcements. But in reflection on these things, let's sing this. It's a current song called the Revelation Song. And, and let's look forward to that time when he will return. He'll set all things right. We'll no longer be <laughs> demised by a sin-sick world. But we'll have eternal presence with him in all of his glory and his hope. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. and We thank you for your grace in our lives, God. Father, may we reflect in this song of worship the truths of who you are and what you've accomplished for us through your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.